And once again, and for the final time, or at least the final time in a while, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, and this time to chapter 6. Now, I say final time at least for a while. It's because we've come to the end of our series. We will, I'm sure, and sooner or later come back to the book of Galatians, depending on how you have found this series to be and this book as we looked at it. We'll probably determine whether you hope we get back sooner or would rather it be later. But the series is entitled Freedom because that is the theme that permeates this entire letter. It is what Christ secured for us. Paul even uses the phrase that is worthy of reflection from time to time, that it is for freedom that we have been set free. Through Christ, through the gospel, through his life, his death, we have been set free not only from the guilt of our sin, but we have been set free from power. Uh, We have been set free in order to fellowship with God and to serve the people who are around us. And this is a powerful book that, even as we've said before, has been life-transforming for a number of people who uh, who have read it historically. It was this letter that brought transformation to Martin Luther as it led him, prompted him towards the Reformation. It was this letter, or at least Luther's commentary on this letter, that was at work within John Wesley, who was already a fairly popular evangelist, when he, reading Luther's commentary on Galatians, understood the concept of what is ours when we believe in Christ, and in Wesley's words, became strangely warm. His declaration that even though he'd been a faithful or a fruitful evangelist, it was at that point that he was converted, when he understood that what is ours by God's grace because of God's initiative in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I hope that it's been challenging and encouraging to you, uh, even as it's been challenging and encouraging in preparation to preach. But we come to the end this week in the last few verses, which begin in chapter 6 in verse 11. And before we come to read this, though, we want to ask God to speak to us, even as we consider it this morning. Our Father, we do come with thanksgiving to you as you have given us this word as an expression of reality and of truth of correction and encouragement. You give this to us as one who knows us better than we know ourselves. And so rather than giving us an instruction list, you make a diagnosis and show us that Jesus is the remedy. Father, open our eyes that we may see Christ. Open our hearts that we may know our need. And open our minds that we may understand what it is that you inspired the apostle to share with us, that our lives might be more and more and continually conformed to become like Christ, and that we, your people, would experience the joy of being your children and the joy of your power at work within us. We pray all of this for the sake of the name of Christ and his glory. Amen. Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, 
peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I recently became familiar with the story of a man named David Ireland. It's not a new story. In fact, it goes back a while, but I had only recently been introduced to it, and it captured not only my imagination, but really uh, my thought and, to a large degree, my own heart. If you're not familiar with David Ireland and David Ireland's story, David Ireland was a man who was afflicted with a crippling degenerative neurological condition. Then, having already experienced the crippling effects of this condition, he was notified that there was not only no cure, uh, but that he was dying. Soon after being notified that he was dying, he learned that his wife was pregnant. Realizing that he was never going to meet his own child, he decided that he wanted to give to that child, uh, or say to that child through writing, all that he would never have the opportunity to do in person. And so he committed himself to writing letters to his unborn child. And these letters, not just a few, but quite a few, uh, were then collected and published in 1974 in a book titled Letters to an Unborn Child. Now, one of the letters that David Ireland wrote to his unborn child was actually about his wife, about the child's mother. And in the letter, this is what David Ireland writes. Your mother is very special. Few men know what it's like to receive appreciation for taking their wives out to dinner when it entails what it does for us. It means that she has to dress me, shave me, brush my teeth, comb my hair, wheel me out of the house and down the steps, open the garage and put me in the car, take the pedals off the chair, stand me up, sit me in the seat of the car, twist me around so that I'm comfortable, fold the wheelchair, put it in the car, go around to the other side of the car, start it up, back it out, get out of the car, pull the garage door down and get back into the car and drive off to the restaurant. And then it starts all over again. She gets out of the car, unfolds the wheelchair, opens the door, spins me around, stands me up, seats me in the wheelchair, pushes the pedals out, closes and locks the car, wheels me into the restaurant, and then takes the pedal off the wheelchair so I won't be uncomfortable. We sit down to have dinner, and she feeds me throughout the entire meal. And when it's over, she pays the bill, pushes the wheelchair out of the car again, and reverses the same routine. And when it's over, when the evening is over and finally finished, with real warmth, she'll say, honey, thank you for taking me out to dinner. I love you. And then he ends the letter to his child by saying, I never know quite what to say. Now, if that doesn't cause a lump in your throat, then you need to check your pulse because you aren't breathing or your heart is so hard that you have serious problems. It's a beautiful story. And in an allegorical way, it's a beautiful picture of the love that God lavishes upon us, who despite certain abilities, which David Ireland had some, day to day, all of our needs, all that ultimately matters, God provides for us and lavishes upon us 
Even the gifts that we have that enable us to function, they were given to us by God. And so there's a beautiful picture here of just love that is lavished upon somebody else. But I also, I want to ask you to imagine for just a moment about the difference it would make had David Ireland not ended this letter by saying, I never know quite what to answer. But immediately after hearing of all that his wife has done, and then at the end she thanks him for taking it out to dinner, he responds and finishes the letter by saying, and son, I want you to know that everything your mother does for me, I have coming to me. I deserve it, I am worthy of it, and she would be negligent if she had done anything else. How would you feel if that was the way that he responds at the end of this beautiful description of what she does for her, for her husband? Now, we would still have a lot of emotion, but rather than the emotion that would sentimentally choke you up, the emotion would be turned in another direction entirely, and with the same passion and intensity, rather than being choked up, we would say, what a jerk! Because there is just something ugly about mistaking the gift of lavished love as if it is something that is earned or deserved. It's just very ugly and it sucks out all the joy and all the beauty that the story itself did and does encapsulate. And it's pertinent for us because in a very real sense, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians and to us for some similar reasons that David Ireland was writing to his unborn son. Paul, as you read the, the verse 11, is, is writing to a people and even here, as it says, see what large letters I'm, I'm writing to you uh, with my own hand. Paul then is indicating that there's been a shift that's taking place up to this point. It was very common, but up to this point, Paul had been dictating his letter. And then for whatever reasons, Paul had told the, uh, the one who was the scribe who was writing it down, you can take a coffee break. I'm going to finish this letter up myself. Now, one of the reasons may have been just for validation. That way, if Paul, if there were handwriting experts or anybody familiar with anything Paul had written, by the fact that Paul had written in his own hand, they would be able to recognize this letter actually did come from Paul. It's authenticated as coming from the apostle. But Paul also, it's interesting, as he uses, kind of amusing somewhat, he says, see what le large letters I'm using. I mean, he's writing his own John Hancock there to be noticed, but he wants to be noticed for a particular reason. And basically what Paul is doing by not only writing and authenticating, but by writing in large letters, is he's calling your attention to what it is that he has to say here. The effect of the large letters that Paul is using, in contrast to whatever size letters had gone before, has the same effect as, as they tell us that those of you who write emails and then you use all caps, that's what Paul is doing by using large letters. Psychologists tell us that when there's all caps, the person is screaming. They're screaming that word. What is written there is important. That word or that message is vitally important. Take notice. Make sure you hear it. Make sure that you're considering it. I'm not sure what that means for those of you who send me emails that the whole thing is entirely in caps. Either you just really need to scream or you believe everything you have to say is of essential importance and not even just the central message. That's a whole other subject. Paul, though, as he's writing here and saying, see what large letters he is screaming to a people that he loves who are in danger of becoming like the David Ireland that wasn't, who believe that the lavish love that they are receiving from God is because somehow they have earned it. 
They know that love was extended when they didn't deserve it, but then their whole life is being tempted to be lived out through performance and relating to God on the basis of their performance. And Paul, throughout this letter, has been passionately saying, no, don't buy into that false teaching, life-wrecking, joy-killing mistake. Don't miss the love of God. And Paul, when he's writing in these large letters, in order to communicate in a similar way that David Ireland is, is essentially saying, if I could leave you one thing, even though I may not see you in body, if I can leave you with one thing, it would be this, that you would have an understanding of the power of the cross and the centrality of the gospel, not only to free you through salvation, but to give you the joy and the mercy and the peace that you desire in life day to day. And so Paul, as he shifts gears here, and he ends this letter, He is summarizing in some ways all that he has said before, but he's also pointing out a condition that each one of us has and saying that day in, day out, we must make a choice. Paul is encouraging us to make the wise choice, the choice that leads to peace and mercy the choice that leads to a joy in the relationship that we have with God. Now, as Paul writes here, there's a couple of things that we need to see in this letter, in these last verses. And the first would be this, is genuine Christianity is more of a matter of an inward transformation than than outward observations. Let me say that again and hopefully intelligibly. Genuine Christianity is more of a matter of inward transformation than outward observations. Now, you may wonder where I'm getting that because there's not a verse that specifically states that. But that's the theme that is permeating not only the letter, but is permeating this closing um, section of this particular letter. He's writing to a people who have been tempted to assume that Christianity, spirituality, relationship with God is about performance that then therefore brings change within. And Paul is saying, no, Christianity is not outside in. Christianity is an inside out. It's the transformation that takes place inside that is vitally important that ultimately will bring about change in your behavior, your actions, your priorities. Now, I would correct that even some, even though it's my own saying it's an inside out and say actually Christianity, while it's, well, it definitely is not outside in, and it is sort of inside out, it's actually outside, inside, outside. But that's too confusing to throw out at the, right, at the first place. But we do need to explore that. Because there is a culture around us and a natural, uh, perhaps, proclivity that we have to believe even the inside-out message in a way that can be distorting. Because in our culture, we're told a lot of times, well, there's a little bit of God in each of you. You need to find your inner light. And we need to be reminded that the scripture says the inner light, it's kind of like when you're refrigerated, it's burned out long ago. It burned out at the fall. Your inner light isn't working. And so we don't notice it because everybody's inner light bulb has gone out and has become dim. And so we just assume that that's the normalcy. But as we stand, there is no inner light within us by our own nature. But because there is no inner light within us by our own nature, God, who loved us and an expression of his love, has done something for us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the light of the world into the world to become like us, who lived a life that we ought to have lived and died the death that we should have died in order that through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we might have the life that we hope for that many of us assume we can't possibly have. 
That's known as the gospel, the message of what Jesus has done. It's the picture of the gospel. And the gospel is something that is entirely outside of us. It's not a matter of mustering the good within us and then becoming better. It's a matter of determining, responding to that message that is entirely from God, outside of us, that begins on the outside. But once we respond, and if our response is to believe, then there is a transformation that takes place on the inside. We become new, and the Holy Spirit becomes part of us. He dwells within each of us, bringing about his work is the inner transformation that changes everything. And as the Holy Spirit is at work within us over time, as we are responding to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, then the outward transformation that we want to see, that we expect to see, and sometimes we take for granted, that actually is produced, known as the fruit of the Spirit. It's an outside, inside, outside work. And Paul is saying, really, throughout this letter, it's vitally important that we don't shortcut and don't miss that and don't mistake that. And even in these letters here, he is challenging two different mindsets that we'll look at in a moment and wants us to understand how God works, how genuine spirituality works, so that we can experience what God has offered us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is the outside message that brings transformation that we must believe because the gospel is the message that continues. And I love the way that Tim Keller phrases it when he says, and the gospel that we are to respond to is an equal opportunity offender. The gospel offends the entire world. It offends those that would be more liberally inclined because the gospel just seems too intolerant. Because there are standards that God has established and he calls any violation of them to be sin. And there are some who walk among us that would assume that just seems too harsh to be calling something sin and brokenness. And so it's an offense to be able to to tell people, you're messed up. And for conservative people, it's an offense because it tells those who would consider themselves good or aspire to be good, who would try to be good, you're as messed up as everybody else. And so while on one side people are offended because it's intolerant, I would say conservative people tend to be offended because of its inclusivity. Because we are told that we are no better off apart from the cross than anybody else. Our situation is exactly the same. Our fate would be exactly the same that we would have no better shot in relating to God or having the joy in life than the Boston bomber does, even if we have done nothing but help other people with all of our lives, because we are still broken, and we are all sinners. And the gospel reminds that to us, and it offends us, and how we respond to that offense is essential because it's the only thing that leads hope. For some, in their anger, they will reject it, and others, when they recognize, despite their offense, that it is true, we respond with belief and clinging to the hope that is offered us on the other side of the gospel, which all of the God promises in Jesus Christ. It's been said that the grace of Christ is sweetest just after the Spirit convicts us that we have swallowed the bitter pill of sin. It's also been said similarly as that grace only tastes sweet after we have tasted the bitterness of our sin. And the gospel reminds us of both. Our brokenness, it offends us in order to restore us. And it is vitally important because that's the key component that we need to understand the outside so that God begins to work inside as we receive the truth of the gospel that brings about the 
outward change that we all desire. But the primary thing that Paul talks about here is not that, but Paul's primary emphasis here is this. It reminds us that the heart of our true faith, or the heart of what we really believe, is reflected by whatever we boast about. And Paul seems to assume that all of us are inclined to boast in one way or another. It's the things that we talk about. It's the things that are most important. It's the things that we measure ourselves. And he says that through this letter that there's essentially, there are two things, or one of two things, that we choose to boast about. He said that there are those who boast in the flesh. In other words, they boast in what they do, what they have done, what they have, or who they know, or, uh, you know, or those who boast in the cross, which means those who constantly talk about what Jesus has done for them. And Paul says there's a distinction there. We boast in either the flesh or we boast in the cross. And the reason that he's writing this to the Galatians and the reason that we are reading it this morning is because we have to be asking ourselves, which do I boast in? Those who boast in the flesh can have many different ways in which they are boast. In fact, probably limited only by your imagination. But those who boast in Christ have only one thing to boast in, which is who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, I say that, and there's a religious language here that's easy for us to miss, because I think it's important for us to just to even consider about just how weird it is to be boasting in the cross especially as Paul makes such a declaration God forbid that I boast in anything other than the cross I mean while we especially if you've grown up in the church we we don't recognize this is a a really weird and and the early readers would have thought a warped thing to be boasting about in fact the whole idea the word the cross crucifixion that word was not said in polite company It was just so scandalous, so heinous, so cruel, so ugly. It was what we would consider a swear word. It would be the kind of thing you tell your children. We don't talk about that. We don't say words like that around here. Because we need to remember what the cross actually is. It is perhaps the most gruesome, cruel means of execution devised by man. It is capital punishment. And so to say, I boast in the cross, we need to hear an equivalent of saying, I boast in the gallows, and I wear around my neck a, a little noose so that I can celebrate that. I, ghost in a gas, I, I boast in a gas chamber, and I don't have any idea what you would wear, a little gas mask around your, I have no idea what you would wear. But the fact that we see the beauty of the cross misses the ugliness of the cross, and it reminds us yet again that God has taken something ugly and made something beautiful. But those who are reading it, and even we, need to be aware of just how ugly, how absurd it is for Paul to be saying, I not only boast in the cross, God forbid that I would boast in anything else other than the cross. And even the word boast is difficult for us to understand to some extent. I mean, we get the idea. We talk about bragging and what we talk about. But theologian John Stott, in his uh, classic work, The Cross of Christ, he reminds us that there is really no legitimate English word translation that captures the full meaning of the word boast. It's not just a matter of bad habit, things that you talk about or things that you're proud of. But here's what Stott says... He says, boast, as Paul's using it here, it means to boast in, to glory in, to trust in, to rejoice in, to revel in, and to live for. All of those concepts are encapsulated in the word boast as it's used here as Apostle Paul was writing. And so it's not just a matter of what you talk about, although that's the evidence of your boasting, but it's something that you, you revel in. It's something that 
occupies your mind, your attention, something that you live for. Stott goes on in that work and he says, the object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our obsession. And so in other words, when Paul says, may God forbid, God forbid that I would boast in anything other than the cross, he's saying, may I not live for anything other than the cross. May the cross be the object of my attention, that I spend my time thinking about, contemplating. May it be what lines the horizon for me, my object that I am pursuing. Because as he's using the word boast, and in saying we tend to boast either in the flesh or we boast in the cross, it not only is part of our religion, but it's what sets our agenda. What is it we're looking for? What is it we're working toward? What is it we live for? And what is it we enjoy each day as we are on the journey of this life? And then when you consider what a cross is and what, what's happened, happening on a cross for the most part, we recognize all the more how absurd this statement seems to be that he was going to boast in the cross. The reality is, though, most of us are conditioned to boast in almost anything else other than the cross. Not that we don't believe and even rejoice in the cross, but we tend to be conditioned to just kind of put that in the background. It's part of our story, but what we talk about is almost anything else. Sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's occupational. We boast in almost anything other than the cross. And perhaps it's because we understand the oddity without really thinking about it. Perhaps it's because we haven't contemplated as Paul has and calls us to do is to see why Paul would be possessed in saying that he's going to boast in the cross. Because it's not a piece of wood that is perpendicular to one another or um, that, uh, that, uh, that, that is vitally important and there's any particular beauty in that. It's what the cross has come to represent. The cross in Paul's world, the cross in the Christian world, symbolizes is simply shorthand for the gospel because the cross represents Christ and what Christ did on that cross. That he was killed on that cross, which is gruesome, and yet he died on that cross willingly as a demonstration of love in order to set us free. That's how something ugly became so beautiful and how Paul was able to say, may I boast in nothing other than what Jesus and he alone has done for me. And yet our inclination is, even when we believe that, is to know that it's important, but spend our time talking about other things. And even when they're spiritual, sometimes they can tend to be boasting in the flesh. We may talk about the mission that we have done, the ways that we have served other people, a number of good things. But Paul's not saying that he wants to boast in the fruit. He's saying, I either boast in the cross or I'm boasting in the flesh. Those are the two categories. Now, there are certain marks that he reveals here about those who will boast in the flesh. And it's important for us to consider them and ask ourselves to what extent or how often are these characteristic of us. And the first mark of a person who boasts in the flesh is that outward appearances are what matter most. We see Paul dealing with that in, in verse 12. He says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And then in the second part of verse 13, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, Paul's talking about people who just are looking to have you essentially converted through and submitting to circumcision so they can chalk up another number. He's talking about people who are on a mission trip to, uh, to Jerusalem 
And their concern is, what do the people back home, are they from Jerusalem to Galatia? And their concern is, what do the people back home think of me? And so I need some external things to be talking about. And conversions, and people who are, uh, it would be a great thing to talk about. And circumcision would be a good way of marking those who are really converted to our way of thinking. And so they're just concerned about the outward appearances is what matters the most. And not just because talking about what's taking place inside our hearts is sometimes difficult to express. They really believe that's what matters, as long as you have things that you can put in your account. Well, I'm not always a fan of the, of the message. I love the way Eugene Peterson phrases it, uh, th this passage. Peterson says, these people who are attempting to force the ways of circumcision on you have only one motive. They want an easy way to look good before others lacking the courage to live by faith that shares Christ's suffering and death. In other words, whatever they do, it's just so they look good for others. And as I read Peterson's description of that, they want an easy way so that they can look good in front of others. And I just natural inclinations to think, what? How stupid. How foolish. Until I begin to recognize that there's almost nothing that I do that is not tainted in some way by the desire to look good, to earn respect. Now, for me, it's not necessarily the driving motive of why I do most of the things that I do, hopefully less than it perhaps had been in the past. But it doesn't take long, not many ticks of the clock, after between the time that I've done almost anything good and wondering if you noticed. Didn't you see that? And then on my best days, when there's not any possible way for anybody to know what I have done for somebody other than whoever I may have served or something that I have done, it's just amazing how it doesn't take long for somebody to send me an email, show up with a complaint in my office, whether about me or something else. And my mindset is, are you kidding me? Do you know what I just did? No, you don't. Let me tell you what I just did. Oh, I can't tell you about that, but if you knew what I just did, you wouldn't have the nerve to be questioning me. Who are you to be in my presence? Now, it doesn't express itself exactly that way, but I have a feeling that the ugliness looks that way to God because it's very rare that I will do anything that is purely for the benefit of others and for the joy of God. Somewhere or another, I want people to appreciate me. And the only way for people to appreciate me is if they have a reason to appreciate me, which is only measured in external marks. And I suspect I'm not the only one, because every one of us, in some way or another, is influenced in that. And so it leads us that we have to ask ourselves, perhaps regularly, what are the external measures we use to impress other people? It may be your service. It may be your commitments. It may be your zeal. It may be your generosity. There's no limit. But we have to ask ourselves, what do we do? Second mark of those who are to boast in the flesh is that their motive is to avoid cost at all cost. It's essentially what Paul says here in verse 12. They only do what they do in order that they may not be persecuted by the cross of Christ. In other words, the believers in Jerusalem... They know the importance of Christ dying that, and what God sent him. But the idea that we live by faith alone and what Christ alone has done 
is not very popular. In fact, it's an insult to every religion that has exists on the face of the earth and our own sense of self-worth. It says that our efforts, our successes, they don't count in this equation, and we just don't like that. And when people don't like things, they tend to be rather rude about it, ugly about it. And those who were believing in Christ were not only persecuted by those who were unbelievers, but we see as those who would call themselves Christian, but they were trying to Judaize, make everyone follow certain set of rules. In this particular case, the rule of circumcision. And Paul says, you know what? They do what they do, not only so that other people will think well of them, but they also are afraid. Whether they're conscious of it or not, they're also afraid that if they don't do these things, then people will turn on them and they will experience hardship. They will have to pay some cost. Now, the interesting thing is, is people who believe in Jesus and believe there's no cost are actually not believing in what Jesus said because Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you must pick up your cross. Now, that's not the same cross that Jesus died on. That was a once for all. We cannot be Christ. We cannot become the gospel. We live in light of the gospel. We can reflect the gospel. But what he means by that is, if you're going to follow Christ, to fo the path that he calls us to is sometimes very difficult. Or maybe a better way of saying it is, sooner or later, it will be difficult for all of us in some way or another. It may even lead to death. And these people were motivated by whatever would bring them the most popularity and the most ease with no cost. Now the question we have to ask is what is the cost? My mind immediately goes to the rich young ruler. A really good guy, by all accounts. Most of you know the story. A young man who was a really good guy comes to Jesus and said, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus says, you must keep the law when it's full. And the guy says, I've done that. I've done that pretty much my whole life. And apparently there was no snickering of the people who were around, and Jesus didn't confront him on the ridiculousness of such a statement. And so, well, certainly he didn't keep the law fully his entire life because nobody other than Jesus had done that. This guy made a pretty good stab at it. It wasn't a ridiculous thing for him to say. But Jesus says, one thing you lack. Take everything you have and sell it to the poor. And the guy slinks away. Now, that's been misinterpreted a number of ways, and one of which is to say if you have any possessions, then it's wrong, and that everybody universally is supposed to just liquidate everything you have, and all Christians everywhere should be poor. Frankly, I don't think the world would hate us that much if we did that. But that's not what it's saying. It's saying that there is a cost to follow Jesus Christ, and we need to be asking ourselves consistently, just like that man was confronted, what is it that I find essential that would be a deal-breaker in order to following Jesus? In other words, Jesus, I would like to follow you, but I can't part with that man It was his money. For some of us, it is comfort. For some, it's popularity. For some, it's respect. For some, it may be health. God has called you, and for whatever reasons, your health is not good. You hear people talking all the time that God's intent is to heal everybody, except he didn't heal everybody in all the scriptures, so I don't know why he would heal everybody now. He heals who he chooses to heal, and all of us have a purpose for his glory. Some through the rejoicing and healing, some through the holiness that comes in the midst of suffering. But there are deal breakers, things that we hold on to that we won't give up because we don't want to experience the cross. We don't want to feel the persecution. And I get that. Persecution is not high on my list either. 
I had a seminary professor who had been a very effective missionary who I learned from fairly well. One of the things that he said was, martyrdom, I learned, is the gift that you only use once. I'm choosing to save mine. And despite being an incredibly rugged guy who was an effective missionary and has a godly legacy as well, he said that I learned at one point that I wrote a little poem to remind me my philosophy of ministry as when persecution comes your way, run, run far away and live to preach another day. And so it seemed like a reasonable way to approach things. Now he was has suffered in his life and in his ministry and he was being somewhat facetious but I get the sentiment because I'm not really wanting to jump in and suffer very much and so I have to constantly be asking what's the deal breaker for me those who boast in the flesh boast in whatever it is that makes their life easy and in third is they, they, they those who boast in the flesh create self elevating rules and Paul talks about that in verse 13 verse 13 he says for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, these are people that have elevated the practice of circumcision as if this is what really matters. Now, there's some things I don't do as well as others, but circumcision, I do that. And so if anybody's serious, they're going to keep circumcision as a rule. People who boast in the flesh boast in the rules that make them look good. And they elevate certain rules above other rules in order that no matter how you measure it, they come out looking good. And yet this is a universal tendency that we have that we need to be aware of. Because even those of us who are Christians, we might use things that we do in the Christian life as if it's the same thing. You know, I may not pray much, but look how many places I've been around the world in preaching the gospel and sharing. Look, I've been working with the homeless, to which the person who is a prayer but doesn't particularly want to get his hands dirty might say, yeah, well, any mission apart from that's not powered by prayer, it's a wasted, it's it's just all for the flesh. We can come up with anything. And whatever we elevate tends to be what we do or want to do. So that when people look through that lens, we look good. And these people were simply elevating circumcision because they were committed to it or had been circumcised when they were children, so no pain for them. And then expecting other people to follow suit, joining on them so that they could boast to other people about the converse they had. These are the marks of those who uh, boast in the flesh, and they're very common. And even though we are followers of Christ, most of us see these as well. And yet Paul, as he describes, and even as we've come to Christ, most of us long to be people who will boast in the cross. Again, going back to Peterson, he writes it this way. For my part, I'm going to boast about nothing but the cross of our master, Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world set free from the suffering atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into little patterns that they dictate. Can't you see the central issue in all this? It's not what you and I do, submit to circumcision, reject circumcision. It's what God is doing, and he is creating something totally new, a free life. Peterson, in his paraphrase there, captures what Paul is saying in here, because those who boast in the cross have certain characteristics as well. They receive a new identity. You are no longer declared sinners. You are declared saints. You are declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. You are children of God. You are of a totally new identity. You have new priorities. When Paul says that I've been crucified to the world and I to the world to me, he's saying the world no longer has any power on me. You know, they can be whatever they want, but it doesn't have any influence. It doesn't minimize the power of the world. It just doesn't have any impact on me. I'm immune to that is essentially what he's saying. 
because the cross is the object of my affection and of my attention. The other things no longer have the power. And then I've been crucified to the world, he's essentially saying, and therefore the world has no use for me either. So it's a mutual thing. They don't like me, I don't like them, but I don't care because what I care about is who I am in Christ. And then he says that we've also become a new creation. And that's an important thing for us to hear, some of you more than others today. Many of you know that in Christ you have a new record. You're forgiven of your sin, you're counted as righteous in Christ, but you still wrestle with the fact that you just don't feel like you've changed very much. You've not progressed, whether it's one year or 10 years or 40 years in your life. And you just lament. And some of you are so beaten down with guilt of not being holy enough and not having changed enough that you're actually missing an important point. That itself is evidence of the change. There was a time you couldn't care less whether you were holy or not. You couldn't care less whether you were walking with God, whether God was pleased with you. But now it bothers you that you're not what you think you ought to be. That is change. That is the work of the Holy Spirit within those who belong to God. I'm not saying rest there, but I'm saying the same spirit that has brought that change is in you and will enable you to do all the things that God has called you to do. There are characteristics of those who boast in the cross. And as I started thinking about this contrast, one of the things that I realized is that there is a tendency. Christians are often accused of being hypocrites. And there is a sense in which it's true. I think it all depends on the message that we proclaim and that we live by. See, if the message of your Christianity is, well, Jesus saved me, and now it's my job to be good, and you should join us and become good, you're going to be confronted as a hypocrite because you don't follow Jesus perfectly, as none of us do, and you don't follow the rules that you ought to, but in one sense, you're claiming Christ, and you're boasting in your goodness, in your actions, your work, which Paul characterizes boasting in the flesh. When the message of Christianity is about what we do and we don't do, rather than the cross, we're open to being accused of being hypocrites. But think about it for a moment. If the message of Christianity, as Paul declares it, is this, is you are messed up, but God in his love sent his son to redeem the world that you would become his children simply by believing the love that God has demonstrated in the gospel because of the cross. It changes everything. Then when somebody comes and says, well, you know, you're a hypocrite, you do whatever, it doesn't matter whether the accusation is valid or invalid, on target or just partially on target or not valid at all. Because our natural response is, well, I don't know if you're right or not, but you don't know the half of it. I'm a whole lot worse than you think I am. But I'm loved more than I understand more than I imagine. See, that response is not subject to hypocrisy. There is no hypocrisy. Now, what if that wasn't just our rhetorical response? What if that was our mindset? What if what we wanted people to know about us was not that I preach or do work with mercy or that I, whatever it is that we want to put out there so that people see us as good people. But the only thing that mattered to us was that people know, that we know, that we are messed up and no better, should not be counted as any better than others because I don't know how you would gauge that. But that our only hope is that we are loved by a God in a baffling way. 
What would that do to the way people perceive the church, Christianity, and you? The issue is not just to alleviate criticism, but I think the reality for us is this. When we are clear and boasting in the cross, not only are we free, but others understand clearly how they may be free as well. I'm going to finish up with this. There's some commercials out that you've probably seen with Rob Lowe and the other Rob Lowe, whoever the other Rob Lowe may be. And there is a sense in which I'm going to take those commercials and say it really fits to what Paul is saying in this passage and really for the Christian life. He's saying, don't be like Rob Lowe. Be like Rob Lowe. We are constantly faced with what are we going to boast in? And we're conditioned and we need to be aware, what do we boast in? And if we boast in, if our identity is wrapped in that I'm a pastor or, you know, you're consistent in church, whatever it is, and if our identity is wrapped in what we do, whether we want to or not, we're boasting in the flesh. But if our mindset says that the only thing we want for people to know is that I know that beyond all reasonable understanding. I'm loved by God, and I know this because Jesus came and died for me, and I'm just living my life to explore what that means. That's a life that's boasting in the cross. That's the good Rob Lowe for my purposes today. We constantly have to ask ourselves, which are we? And die to the tendency to the flesh that we might live more and more free in the gospel of the cross. That's functional, glorious freedom in Christianity. Let me pray. I told myself I was going to be done in a half an hour, but I'm the only one that believes myself in this. So anyway, that's... um, Father, thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ that we don't understand, that we constantly forsake, and that we long for. And I pray for those who are here that all of us would choose to center ourselves on the message of the cross, that it would be what oozes from us, and that when we find ourselves knocked off the center, we would constantly be centering ourselves. Because, Lord, the cross, the gospel of Christ, is the only true worthy center from which all life and peace and joy and mercy flows. Bless us, Lord, I pray in Christ.